The Hamlet Podcast, episode 32. Hello and welcome to this exploration of Shakespeare's Macbeth with me, your host, Connor Hanretty. Macbeth has just given a rather stirring address to his two murderers for hire, promising them that if they really are men, he has a terrific job for them. He's been pushing two fairly intense narratives here, that Banquo is their enemy and that if they're men, they'll kill him, and by extension, make their new king very happy. The second murderer gets to speak at last, and he says, I am one, my liege, whom the vile blows and buffets of the world have so incensed that I am reckless what I do to spite the world. He's saying that not only is he a man, but that he's quite happy to be reckless. The world has been so brutal with him that he'll do anything to spite it. Here we have the word buffets, which we also encountered in that mammoth Act 2, Scene 2 of Hamlet. Blows and buffets mean the same thing, so it's a hendiadis, an image where two things are combined into a single image. The world has dealt this poor murderer several blows, Note that it is pronounced buffets and not buffets. This is not a man who has been betrayed by the world's casual dining options. I make this joke because I was once in a rehearsal wherein a lovely young actor, who wasn't to know any better, gave the whole room a fit of culinary giggles when he got it wrong. Likewise, our murderer is incensed, as in enraged, rather than incensed, like a temple offering. The first murderer chimes in too, not to be outdone. Finishing his colleague's line of verse, he adds, And I another, so weary with disasters, tugged with fortune, that I would set my life on any chance to mend it or be rid on it. He's saying he likewise has had a rough time of it. He's weary with disasters and has tugged with fortune. This is a weird little phrase, but apparently tugging was a term for pretty rough wrestling, and so he's saying he's gone a few rounds in the ring with fortune and hasn't done very well in there. So, he says, he will risk his life on just about anything. At this point he'll be happy either way, whether his actions mend it or end it. So Macbeth is seeing that these are two men happy to live on the edge, but he feels the need to remind them, so he says, Both of you know Banquo was your enemy. No explanation necessary. But it feels almost like Macbeth wants them to blame Banquo for all these ills they've encountered. And the murderers agree with him, and they both say, True, my lord. And now Macbeth proceeds to the next step in his plan. So is he mine and in such bloody distance that every minute of his being thrusts against my nearest of life, and though I could with barefaced power sweep him from my sight and bid my will avouch it, yet I must not. For certain friends that are both his and mine, whose loves I may not drop, but wail his fall, who I myself struck down, and thence it is, that I to your assistance do make love, masking the business from the common eye for sundry, weighty reasons. 
Are we maybe seeing the last few drops of that milk of human kindness? Banquo has been so close to Macbeth that maybe he couldn't really do this himself. But he's proclaiming, to the murderers at least, that Banquo is also his enemy. And they're in such a point of enmity and distance, or disagreement, that every minute that Banquo remains alive is like a thorn in Macbeth's side, a nuisance to everything he holds dear. In such bloody distance that every minute of his being thrusts against my nearest of life. Macbeth is playing the politician here. He now says that he could, of course, have Banquo put to death just because he's king. He could use his barefaced power to get Banquo out of his sight and then justify it by simply saying that this is his will. I could, with barefaced power, sweep him from my sight and bid my will avouch it. But, he says, he can't. And why not? Well, he and Banquo have some mutual friends, and Macbeth can't really afford to lose their support. So instead he'll have to lament Banquo's death like everyone else, even though he's behind it. Yet I must not, for certain friends that are both his and mine, whose loves I may not drop, but wail his fall who I myself struck down. And so this is why he needs to employ the murderers and have them assist. We're getting some rather interesting imagery of masks and masking here. Macbeth can't be barefaced in his display of power, and so instead he's trying to mask the business. That word yet again. Business is the hardest working euphemism in this play. Macbeth wants to hide this murder from the common eye. He doesn't want people knowing that he was involved at all, for the various reasons he's mentioned, and perhaps some others. Not least Banquo's knowledge of the witch's prophecy, which he's certainly not about to share with these two ne'er-do-wells. Thence it is that I, to your assistance, do make love, masking the business from the common eye for sundry, weighty reasons. Macbeth has just asked these two men to commit an awful crime. It's very easy to get sucked into the grim universe of this play and forget the stakes, the king is asking these two men to kill his best friend. It's always interesting in performance to see if the murderers take even a second to think about it before they agree. The use of the phrase make love is another echo of Hamlet here, and like the line in that play, it seems the murderers will also make love to this employment. Second murderer answers first and says, we shall, my lord, perform what you command us. So they'll do it. And the first murderer starts into a line that could be very interesting, acknowledging that, though our lives... But we only get three words. Though our lives have been terrible, we'll try anyway. Though our lives be nothing, we'll offer them for you. Though our lives depend on it. So we don't really have a choice whether or not we do what you say. It doesn't really matter, because Macbeth interrupts. Your spirits shine through you. Within this hour at most, I will advise you where to plant yourselves, acquaint you with the perfect spy of the time, the moment on it, for it must be done tonight. And something from the palace. 
always thought that I require a clearness. And with him, to leave no rubs nor botches in the work, Fleance his son that keeps him company, whose absence is no less material to me than is his father's, must embrace the fate of that dark hour. Resolve yourselves apart. I'll come to you anon. It's presumably ironic that Macbeth says these murderer's spirits shine through them. Surely, again, the murderer's spirit is something that should be kept under wraps. He's cutting them off now that they've agreed to the job, because he has more to say. Now he needs to give them their brief. Within the next hour, at the most, he will tell them where to position themselves. So far, so straightforward. But in the next line, we have an enduring, weird little mystery of the play. Macbeth assures the murderers that he will acquaint them with the perfect spy of the time. For some, this is a nod to the third murderer who's going to show up in a subsequent scene. Sorry if I've spoiled that surprise. But that shady third murderer is a total surprise to the other two when he does appear, so it doesn't make much sense for Macbeth to be telling them about him now. They may be cutthroats, but they aren't stupid. I think that this spy of the time image is just a phrase for Macbeth's promise to advise them of the best possible vantage point from which to spy on Banquo and, eventually, surprise him. He continues the promise that he'll also tell them the right moment for the job, and insists that it has to be done tonight. He also recommends that it should be done at some distance from the palace. Having had such a close shave after he killed Duncan and his bodyguards, he now wants nothing to point anywhere near him. He requires a clearness. He quite literally wants no more blood on his hands. He really has picked up his wife's acumen for this business, having learned from his own experience. He was traumatised worrying about getting his hands clean, so of course now he mentions it again. And, just like his wife, he wants the job done properly. On top of this, Macbeth has an extra demand to make. He wants them to kill Fleance too, just to be sure that there's no hope of Banquo's line continuing. There are to be no rubs or botches in the work. He has quite a chilling, nonchalant euphemism for death here. He's saying that he's just as interested in Fleance's absence as that of his father. He needs to be killed too. Fleance, his son, that keeps him company, whose absence is no less material to me than is his father's, must embrace the fate of that dark hour. Macbeth concludes by telling the two to go and prepare themselves for the job somewhere else. It rather feels like another bell has rung or some kind of motion is happening, since all of a sudden he wants this pair gone. Resolve yourselves apart. I'll come to you anon. The murderers get quite an elegant response to this. They say, We are resolved, my lord. It's just a little play on words. Macbeth meant go and get ready by resolve, and their response means we have decided or committed to do the deed. We are resolved. There's hardly anything to it, but it is a little pleasing use of this word. Macbeth assures them that he'll come and get them presently. He says, I'll call upon you straight. Abide within. And the murderers exit. Now, 
We have reached the conclusion of the scene, and so Macbeth has a rhyming couplet to end it. He says, It is concluded. Banquo, thy soul's flight, if it find heaven, must find it out tonight. It is concluded is a rather grim little sentence. Obviously, Macbeth means that his transaction with the two murderers has been concluded. It has been agreed. But it seems to suggest that Banquo's life is also concluded and all but done. There's quite a contrast to the last time Macbeth spoke to us like this, at the ending of Act 2, Scene 1, with a couplet wondering whether Duncan would go to heaven or to hell. Here, there's less doubt. His good friend Banquo will likely be going to heaven. But if he's going there, Macbeth murderously assures us, he'll be going there tonight. And so ends Act 3, Scene 1. I don't know if there'll be a huge amount of excitement in the show notes for this episode, but the text and any nuggets I can dig up will be, as you well know by now, on thehamletpodcast.com. This episode is at least an hour later than it might have been, thanks to Daylight Savings Time having sprung forward today, but I hope it finds you well, whatever time zone you might be in. Have a great week, and I'll speak to you next time.